Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right, welcome back to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. In our last episode, we were talking about speech and feeding therapy and how it can help your child. I'm going to be joined by Alicia Weeks again of Meech Therapy, who's located right here in Spokane and is licensed in Washington and Idaho. Be sure to check the show notes for information on her practice and how you can reach her if you need of her services. We also are lucky enough to have Camille Ferris join us. Camille is our leading guru on all things feeding therapy. And so we're happy to have her join us from Kids Care Home Health in Colorado. Uh, She's specifically in Colorado, but they also have offices in Texas, Oregon, and Idaho. Her practice is also listed in the show notes. So if we have any Colorado listeners, be sure to look her up. And with that said, let's jump right back into our conversation on speech therapy and feeding therapy services. So when we talk about a long road, we've talked about kind of the little guys and how they kind of plug into speech and how we're working on that language development. We kind of talk about some of the social pragmatics that we tend to work on for our kiddos kind of in those mid-range areas so that they're kind of more that the pragmatics of how we're using communication. Alicia, I don't know what the age range of kiddos that you work with in your practice. At the end, I want to just talk a little bit about your practice because I, I, I love what you're doing. So what's the age range that you generally see? Because what I see is that kids kind of fall off starting like because Caleb's in middle school and he still actively wants to pursue speech. And he actually was this year very clear about he wants to understand people better. So that's one of some of the things that we're going to be working on, too, in terms of some of his goals. But is it fair to say that a lot of kids by middle school, they're wanting to kind of fall out of therapy and just because they're wanting to move on to other things? I think it really depends, you know, obviously on the therapist and their relationship with the therapist, and then also on the setting of therapy. So um, through my entire speech language pathology career, I've been in private practice. Um, I was at a clinic that was owned by and operated by other people, and I've left and started my own practice. Um, I'm very proud of you. So, for that, so. <laughs> thank you. So speaking of, you know, kind of from a private practice perspective and my own personal speech and language journey, I have worked with clients from age, about age four through adults. And by adults, I mean people into their 60s. Um, So really, you know, with speech language pathology, there are roles for us to play at every age and stage from birth to death. And like Camille was talking about with feeding and swallowing therapy, working with younger children, we also can work with individuals who've had like a a traumatic brain injury or have had a stroke or are, you know, just they're losing control of their muscles. So they're having difficulty swallowing in those end phases of life or different types of cancer can cause difficulty with swallowing or ale. I mean, you know, so that, that scope of practice piece is really big. And so it, it obviously is going to depend a lot on, you know, where that client is and what their needs are. I would say if you're thinking like, you know, kind of your generalization of speech language pathology, where a lot of us think like, oh, speech teacher, your speech teacher is helping you with articulation. Most kids should be done with that by the end of elementary school. You know, there are some kids who are going to need to stay in speech therapy for those reasons. 
The other big group of, you know, kids that we see in speech language pathology that will have to continue through, you know, kind of indefinitely are individuals that have more of a global disability or a global delay. Someone with a condition like cerebral palsy may need to stay in speech therapy longer because they're having an AAC programmed for them on a daily basis, or they need that swallowing support. Where my background is and where I've seen students, so I definitely see a good amount of junior high school, later elementary, junior high school and high school students. I'm coming from a world of ADHD and dyslexia. And so, you know, unfortunately, as as an educational system, we're a lot of times not recognizing kids as having a learning disability like dyslexia until fifth or sixth or seventh grade and or until they're failing in high school. And so that's, you know, coming in as a very different type of speech language pathologist than maybe someone that you would see in a school or in a hospital setting. Well, and that's really good. So I'm glad that you talked about that because I wanted to talk about your clinic, which is niche therapy. You just started out on your own. So I'm so proud of you for that. But one of the things that I really want our listeners to understand as well is that your expertise and a lot of your passion is behind learning disabilities, specifically dyslexia. And I applaud you on that because I have dyslexia. And again, I'm much older than you guys. I'm in my forties. So when I was in school and struggled and was in special education because I was academically behind, a lot of it had to do with the fact that my brain processed words, you know, reading, it was very hard for me. And so your clinic, you are very focused and you have a lot of specialized training in dyslexia specifically. And so those are a lot of your clients. And uh, so if you have kids that have dyslexia, I would and I, I never would have thought about SLPs being a place where you would actually be working on, on dyslexia, but it makes total sense. And so talk about a little bit of your practice and how you support students when you have a diagnosis of dyslexia. Sure. So it's more common than you would realize. That's the, tell us the statistics on this, yes. please, because I want people to understand that this is a, something that is way more common than what you would actually think. And so if you have a student that's struggling, it would be maybe worthwhile having a child, a kiddo that's struggling, be assessed for dyslexia, correct? Yes. Yeah. So with dyslexia, dyslexia runs in, you know, obviously different studies have different statistics, but kind of our ballpark is between five and 20% of the population has dyslexia. And that is across all continents and all languages. This is, you know, up to 20% of the human population has has dyslexia. Um, and you know, the role of the speech language pathologist in dyslexia, exactly like you said, you're like, why? Cause you guys work with our sounds. <laughs> what are you doing? You always think of articulation when you think of a speech language pathologist and not yes. in terms of dyslexia. No. Well, so dyslexia at its core is a language-based disorder. And, you know, to kind of move even further back from that. So um, we've talked pragmatic. So there's five different domains of language. I'm going to say them all very quickly. So there's morphology, phonology, switch those two, phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics, and pragmatics. And cool. those basically go in a hierarchy from the most simplistic part of language to the most complicated parts of language. So Phonology is our most basic element of language. Phonology is anything in our language that has that like a sound represents a meaning. So like the word cat, we know that those random three sounds, cat, k, 
can be put together into a word cat that means something to you. If I say it to you, you can picture what a cat is in your mind. Um, And then morphology, which is when we are adding additional pieces of meaning onto our words. So if I take the word cat and I add an S to the end, I've now created the word cats. It is, you know, now I'm picturing something different than if I just picture one cat. So dyslexia lives in that really foundational part of language and phonology and morphology. And I actually misspoke a little bit about phonology. Phonology is the sound system of our language. Morphology is the smallest piece of language that has meaning. So when an individual has dyslexia, doing something like breaking a word like cat into its three individual sounds is not something their brain necessarily wants to do automatically. I suck at phonics. Yes. That's why yes. when I come across a word that I don't know, I start panicking because then it's like, especially if I have to read out loud, because the phonics of it, I can't, I can't do phonics. My brain just has to memorize what those words, that, what that word is. And then I commit it to memory, but I cannot do phonics. Like it's just, they don't, I, I can't break it apart. Yep. Yeah. So that's exactly, that's one type of dyslexia. There's arguments that there's between like two and seven different types of dyslexia. I personally hold the school of thought that there are basically three different kinds of dyslexia. So there's phonological based dyslexia, which is exactly what we just talked about, having difficulty breaking those words apart into sounds for effective spelling and reading. There's orthographic based dyslexia, which is when you can rhyme or you can break those words into sounds. So sorry, rhyming is also part of our phonological system. But orthographic dyslexia is when like you look at a letter and it means nothing, or there's a lot of letter reversals. And then you can obviously have mixed dyslexia where you're having difficulty with both of those things. So yeah, so speech language pathologists, we can go back and, you know, really help treat that phonological system. So understanding that words are made of sounds and that sounds have meaning. And we can also help with that orthographic piece because writing either reading that writing or writing to express yourself as part of language. Like we talked about earlier with the expressive and receptive language. The other piece with dyslexia is that it can also affect things like organization and problem solving. So the ability to write a sentence that all the words are in the right order or to remember to use things like punctuation. Sometimes with individuals with dyslexia, we'll see a sentence that it looks like all one word. And that can also be a result of things like dysgraphia or ADHD too, but it's also very common in, in dyslexia. Oh my gosh. See, if I would have had all of these tools when I was here, it's, I, I could have been president of the United States. I don't know if I really would have wanted to, but um, it's just, it's interesting to hear this because again, there's more and more discussion about dyslexia. I know that schools are focusing and looking at alternative curriculums because it is, it does affect such a larger population than what we originally thought. And I think Again, it's more than, you know, do you confuse two letters? I, I do have a bit of that too. I have a hard time with obviously D's and D's and J's and G's. I also have a really hard time with K's and X's. I just had to type in a password. It's funny that you should say that. I had to type in a password the other day and I was struggling because passwords don't make sense. You know what I mean? And so I was really struggling because it's like, okay, like somebody help me. Is that a K or is that an X? Because, because it does look different. Um, I also struggle um, with just even knowing, is this, is this the right direction that an S is supposed to go or is it backwards? I can't, or a C, you know, is it supposed to go this way or a capital D, you know, which direction it's supposed to go? It sounds so stupid, 
but it just, it, there's so much, I, don't, I feel vindicated now because it's like, oh good, I'm not just an idiot because growing up we were just like, oh, I'm just stupid. And it's like, I don't know why I can't figure out. So my coping strategy was just, I had to memorize it and figure out a way to look at it and memorize. Okay. So, you know, it's the right way, but it, cause it starts right to left or whatever, but that's what I still, I'm 44 years old and I have to resort to some of those strategies, even as an adult, when I see things that are not in relationship to other things and I have to like make a judgment call, it's just so bizarre. And I can't rewire my brain to see it. I've just had to train myself of how to have strategies so that I can remember and like I said yesterday, I had to actually double check with one of my kids that it was a K. Is this a K or an X? Just tell me because I need it to be right. <laughs> sad. It's so sad. So I'm glad that you guys are there and you're working on the forefront of this. Um, of your case, though, Alicia, how much do you feel like is dyslexia? Is it a large and growing population or growing case number? It definitely is. I, I'm, I'm a brand new, uh, you know, in my new private practice right now. So out of my current set of clients, 80% of them have a dyslexia diagnosis. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I think we're seeing more and more that speech language pathologists are really able to understand the training that's needed to provide dyslexia intervention very immediately and at a very comprehensive level. We could, because we have this really broad uh, language background that we get while we're in graduate school, you know, we can come out in kind of a higher level than like a teacher or a reading specialist. And when, you know, we're sitting there talking about phonology and morphine, we're like, we got this, we know exactly what these things are. And we know exactly how, you know, how they're going to process in the brain and how important they are for the rest of language too. I think the other thing that puts speech language pathologists in a really ideal position to work with individuals with dyslexia is we can see that full picture. You know, I, I think dyslexia doesn't happen in a vacuum or language disorders don't happen in a vacuum. And this is a, a big reason why I started niche therapy. And I'm sure with your current batch of goals, you've seen that we are trying to saying we, it's just me. I am trying to contextualize as much of my intervention that I'm doing as possible because doing a worksheet in an office in isolation is not a generalizable skill. But again, doing something like following directions on a pack of macaroni and cheese, and then having the satisfaction and pride that's associated with that. You know, when, when we were preparing for meeting with you today, Holly, I was kind of thinking over like, what are those important pieces of speech language pathology? What can your speech language pathologist do for you? And I think for myself and, and for a lot of my colleagues, my biggest hope for any of my clients, regardless of what level of independence we reach, is that they start to feel confident and they start to feel confident to try new challenges. For example, I was working with a client yesterday who has dyslexia. And they were reading passages and their comprehension level is a couple grades below the grade level that they're in and the grade level that they're reading. And when they're not trying to understand, they can decode at a higher level than they can understand. And that's because when you have dyslexia, exactly like you were talking about, Holly, that process of understanding letters is so like cognitively demanding that it takes up all of your brain power and you're then not able to think about what something means. So, you know, we're working on this and we're reading one, you know, three sentences at a time and then saying what we understand about those three sentences. Read three more sentences, then say what we understand. And, and we went through and they did an article about birds and did a fantastic job. And then we're, I'm like, okay, we're going to do it again. Do you want to do it 
the same way we did before and do, you know, one paragraph at a time? Or do you want to read the whole thing and see if you can comprehend the whole thing? And they're like, I'm going to read the whole thing. And like that just, you know, that makes my whole week is having a child that goes from not being confident in what they're doing to like, and even having a little bit of attitude at me about how they're going to, you know, how dare you ask me if I want to read the whole thing? Of course I do. Like, um, yeah. So that, that confidence piece, that willingness to try new things, that willingness to be vulnerable in front of you as their provider is all, I mean, those are kind of the most important pieces. I agree. I think that's really important. Um, I want to switch over and talk about feeding therapy for a second here, because I kind of want to hear about that window and that crescendo of kind of, again, obviously you tend to get them as babies or a lot of your clients as babies, because we've identified early feeding challenges. Out of curiosity, I wrote down a question that I don't have an answer to. So I like to say that my podcasts like make me smarter. So I'm going to ask this question. Is it necessarily, if a kiddo has a feeding challenge, Does that mean that they're at a higher likelihood of having a communication challenge, like with like expressive language or receptive language as they get older? Like, do the two go hand in hand? That is a great question. I don't have um, a percentage or some type of statistic um, off the cuff for that. For my population that I work with in home health, um, I tend to see a correlation between my kids that I see, especially if I, if I start treating them as a toddler or as like an early, um, early school age child, like kindergarten, first grade, I do, I have noticed in my own work that we're not only dealing with some sort of sensory feeding problem, we're also dealing with a social pragmatic problem or some sort of an expressive receptive that could even be mixed or behavioral. I I had one little guy who would eat things for grandpa, but wouldn't eat things for mom or grandma. And it became very behavioral. And I had to tell them multiple times. And eventually they went to a different provider because I, I was not able to give them the support that they, they truly needed. I think that they needed to hear it from someone else. And it's hard to tell them, Hey, your kid's manipulating you. But in some cases, he, he was delayed with, he had a language delay and that was not something that they were worried about despite me telling them, Hey, there's a language delay here. You know, there's, there's some behavior involved, but I, in my own work have seen that kids who, who require feeding therapy, there's also something else going on, whether that's autism or expressive receptive language delay, something like that. So when you're talking about the feeding therapy and like that picky eating piece, like, is that something where, I mean, I imagine many of these kids you're working with for years and then you can, and, and it probably does transition. A lot of them transition into then you have goals for, you know, social pragmatics or whatnot. So what's kind of the crescendo then when you're working on feeding therapy? Is it something Caleb early on was doing some and his occupational therapist was actually doing some feeding stuff because it was determined to be sensory in nature. And so that was actually really interesting to me because I had never really thought of it being in the occupational therapy world. So that actually is normal to see at times. Is that right? To, to see it kind of blend over into the occupational. Yes. And I love, love, love sending out recommendations for, Hey, never, ever, ever does it hurt to have an evaluation. So if I'm seeing that a kid 
is showing me, you know, an, a sensory aversion, you know, they're hypersensitive to some things, hyposensitive. I'm seeing some, some behaviors that might indicate they're avoiding or seeking something. And it happens to coincide with, Hey, we also have feeding difficulties. I, I always recommend to my parents, Hey, I would really like to send an order to your doctor for an occupational evaluation. If that's something that you'd like to, to do, because they have the insight that speech therapists do not with the sensory world, we, we might be able to see outwardly like, Hey, there's some dysregulation going on. I need to call in backup and reinforcement to help me. So especially with my feeding kids, if I'm noticing that there's difficulty with that, I'm, I'm always reaching out to an occupational therapist to get their point of view on it because they are, they have a lot more education with evaluating, assessing, and treating those, those sensory needs with kids. And oftentimes if, if it is a lot more sensory based and there is some, some language difficulty as well, oftentimes I'll kind of transition that feeding therapy to the occupational therapist. If that's something that they have skills in, you know, with, with SLPs, like Alicia said, there is a huge range of what, what we know and what we can do. Alicia has a lot of experience working with kids who have dyslexia, have dysgraphia. I don't. So if I was referred for, um, a kiddo who had those difficulties, I would most likely recommend to that mom, like, Hey, I know a therapist who has more experience with this that I'm going to refer you to because they are more specialized in that. So and that's how you and I became introduced because I wanted yeah. to talk about some feeding therapy pieces because, you know, again, in our world, it's very common. And Alicia was like this, oh, you know, hey, I, you know, in school, obviously we learned about this, but that's never been an area of my practice. But I have a friend who I went to school with that this is a large part of her practice. And so that's how we were introduced. So you're very right. We all, you guys specialize and have your, you're specialized in different areas where it becomes kind of your expertise, if you will. Yeah. So in terms of like then the feeding therapy, like what's kind of like your age range, like the oldest kid that you see for like feeding type therapy intervention versus just communication? The oldest kid that I, um, that I'm currently working with or have worked with for feeding, actually, I'm going to revise that. The, the oldest kid that I've worked with on feeding therapy was nine. Okay. Um, and then my oldest that I'm working with currently is four. Okay. So it does. So for some kiddos, you have to maintain and still work on that feeding therapy, even up through like as old as nine because of the nature of like what the challenge was. Yeah. So, um, depending on the nature and depending on when their family truly starts therapy with them, um, in, in the case of the nine-year-old that I used to see, I wasn't his first feeding therapist. Um, he, uh, was transitioned to me based on the needs and availability um, that that family had. So oftentimes, you know, I'll pick up a client because their schedule has changed and I'm here, I'm a feeding therapist, I got you. And in the, in the event of that family, they actually requested a break. It wasn't their season. You know, yeah. at a certain point, they were like, hey, we need to take a step back. And I'm like, you do what's best for your family. We are always here. I actually got a text message this week from a mom that I had discharged 
I originally started seeing her son for speech therapy. He was delayed, wasn't talking. Talks up a storm now, and we actually transitioned to feeding therapy. He graduated from that. But I got a message from her this week because I always tell my families, hey, reach out to me if you have any questions. I hadn't heard from her in months. So it just warmed my heart that she reached out to me and was like, hey, we're having trouble potty training. And I'm like, great, not my expertise because I'm a speech and feeding therapist, but here is some information that you can give your doctor to request an occupational evaluation because I know that he can be a bit sensory at times and difficult. So I said, Hey, thank you so much for reaching out. It's your season. It's your time to potty train. Here you go. Well, Um, and that is really, I think that's very mature and for you guys to see that. And I guess too, what I would say too, if you're a parent or a caregiver listening to this, a good therapist is going to understand that season and that like, Hey, we need to take a break. And I can't tell you how often I'm working with families where they're feeling like it's like one of two things. One, they feel like they need to take a break because it's not working. It could just be maybe it's not a right match between the provider and them. And so then they're just not wanting the fight and the resistance. Sometimes it's because, you know, you go through a divorce or a major life challenge. And it's just like, we just can't have like the one more thing. Or again, you have to pay for it out of pocket. And then providers will oftentimes make families feel bad about the fact that they're needing to take a break. And and really, as if you're a parent or caregiver listening and you're put in that position where you're feeling bad, I want to just, and, and, and Camille and Alicia are going to back me up here too, because I see them nodding in my camera. We hear that and it's okay to take a break because it's not your season. You need to be able to step back and then come back and re-engage in therapy when it is the right season, because you're going to get so much more out of it and your kid's going to make more progress. So if you're feeling like that provider is making you feel bad or that you're, you know, that you're somehow, you know, it's detrimental to the kiddo, is it fair to say, because I see you guys have nodded, that it's okay to take a break and to re-engage? Absolutely. Yeah. And something that I have to tell myself, because sometimes, you know, I internalize things as someone who's very sensitive to others um, and about myself. You know, I have to tell myself, like, I, I cannot put forth more work than the family is is capable of doing at this time. It might it might not be a matter of caring. It's just like I can't handle this right now, and it's not a it's it's not a me problem. It's not a you problem. It's just that's where we are. And you you know, as a therapist talking to the therapist out there and giving you know caregivers this perspective as well, we are here for you, and whenever you are ready and willing, that's where we'll be. Yeah. Um, and if, and if right now is not a good time, that's okay. You can, I mean, I use my personal phone for work. So I tell families like, text me with any questions. You want to talk about potty training? Great. Text me. I'm here for you. But you know, on the flip side, if you need a break, that's okay. I'm not going to bug you. Like if you are not ready to take that on, then I can't force you. I can't It's okay. And being comfortable saying like, Hey, this isn't right. Or, Hey, I don't want to work on that. That is completely within a parent or caregiver's rights. We actually talk about that when we're onboarding a family is it's within your right to say, I don't want to do this, or I don't want you as my therapist, or I don't want therapy anymore. We can't make you. And we want to do what what you want. Yeah. Alicia, you're nodding too. So I'm guessing that you have the same philosophy. Yeah. And I was going to say too, you know, two, 
to parents that are listening, you know, remembering that we, as your provider, we're your employee. Um, we work for you. So having that open line of communication and saying like, Hey, that, you know, whatever you guys worked on this week really worked really well, or I didn't understand what you were talking about. And then I think also, you know, it's hard because sometimes we have relationships with parents in addition to relationships that we have with our direct client, who's their child. And we have a really great functional relationship with the parent, but maybe the child is having some hesitation or some behaviors around coming to therapy. And those don't always show up in session. I know I've I've definitely had a couple of kids that their parents are calling me and telling me like, they're having a meltdown every single time we're trying to come to therapy. And it's a surprise because you're like, no, this kid's really compliant. I haven't had any difficulty, but that's important to know because then, I mean, obviously depending on the age and abilities of the child, you know, we can have a conversation with that child um, about like, Hey, you know, your mom mentioned that, that you're having a tough time, like getting in the car to come to therapy, what's going on. And I know sometimes, you know, obviously a different therapist, trying a different therapist and sometimes trying a different modality. You know, I, I think one of the benefits of having our current COVID-19 telemedicine, you know, situation is I had quite a few clients in the spring of last year that all of a sudden were at every single session. There were no problems. There was no behaviors. They're fully engaged. And again, some of these are like eight, nine, 10 year olds. So these are not little kids. And I'd ask them like, Hey, you know, when you were coming to the office, you were having a tough time. Like what's different, what's changed. And, you know, I, I'd say the majority of the kids said, it only takes me 20 minutes now. I only have to see, I come in, I see you, I get to go play. It's not an hour and a half that we have to come down and see you and wait in a waiting room. And there's annoying kids and there's, you know, whatever else is happening. And so again, changing that modality was just really powerful um, and helpful for some people. But yeah, going back to that main point, we are your employee. So let us know, you know, what you need, what works, what doesn't work, because that feedback is really valuable. I think that that's a really good point. The other piece I wanted to see that I oftentimes when I'm working with families, it's the, you know, they want to take a break, but they're being made to feel bad. The second part of it is, is they're being discharged when they don't feel like they're ready. And so that's where uh, I'll get those panic calls where, you know, my provider wants to discharge me. And then it's uh, the concern. And oftentimes what's happening is, is that the, the provider and the kiddo are just really not connecting. And so they're not making progress on those goals. Or secondly, it's that they've kind of gotten to a point where maybe that next step is kind of outside of that provider's like comfortable area. And so it's like, where do you go from that point? And so then the oftentimes what we'll see is that they're discharged when maybe what needs to happen is you need to find a provider that actually is, is working and is really dialed into that next place where you need to go. Or if it's a, a personality conflict, and you're not really making any strides or advances towards meeting those goals, rather than discharging the patient, having a conversation with them about, hey, you know, like maybe it's just that our personalities aren't quite right. And so I always get those panic calls where it's like, we're being discharged from therapy. Can we like refuse? And it's kind of like, um, I don't think you want to refuse. I think, again, this is maybe a more comfortable out for the provider to just say, I don't really know where to go with your kiddo. And unfortunately, it takes that, hey, discharge, which gives that whole, like, you're good. And this is as good as you're going to be. 
and understand it's not that this is as good as like where you're where you're at is basically where you're going to stop. It's just kind of that natural out. I mean, is that fair to say, you guys? I mean, not that you either one of you guys do that, but you know, in in your experience as speech therapist, is that more of a nice, polite, hey, I'm going to discharge you versus having the conversation where I just don't think that I'm the right fit. And it's not that your child can't advance. I just think maybe we should be looking at a a provider that specializes more with this or that. Like, how do you guys feel on that? I try to be as transparent as possible with my family. I appreciate that, Camille, because like I said, it would certainly make my job easier at the Isaac Foundation when I don't have to try and interpret or try and figure out kind of like, oh, could we have handled this better? But yeah, I love that you're transparent. Yeah, because when I discharge, it's because I, it truly, I, I have to tell families like, Hey, your child's needs are beyond my scope of practice. Like I, I saw a kiddo for like two months and I was like, look, we, we worked on the language things that he was, you know, behind in and you guys are able to continue progressing without me. However, I think that you need to talk to your doctor about attention deficit and getting an evaluation for that. And because truly you know, that's where some of these issues are stemming from. Or with one of my kiddos who has a ton of social anxiety, I have since discharged her, but I explained to mom and gave her a provider list of child psychologists. I'm like, I have done all I can for you. And right now, given the COVID situation, we weren't, we weren't able to work on it the way I wanted to. Mom was not comfortable going to the store and practicing things, which I totally get. And I said, in the event that she is discharging from me, I would like you to reach out to a psychologist and to, and continue working on this because it's coming from a place that's very, you know, socially and emotionally challenging for her. And the things that mom was asking me to work on were not in my wheelhouse, you know, you know, telling me like, Hey, she doesn't want to go to X, Y, Z or see this person. And I'm like, I am not trained to deal with those emotional issues. I love that you feel comfortable asking me for that. And I want to help you. These are the people you can go to. So you're not, you're not discharging because she's good to go or he's good to go. We're discharging and moving on to the next step. Yeah. Well, I, I think kind of thinking about that discharge and, and what discharging a client looks like, I'm, I'm going to bring an important piece in here, which you haven't talked about yet, which is insurance. Oh, yeah. So with that, you know, something that when I've had other SLPs or SLPAs that I'm, I'm mentoring and, and for myself, something that I always want to think about when writing that discharge note is writing it as if something can continue to happen in the future. If we're writing a discharge note, that's like all the goals are met. This client is good to go forever, you know, and then we want to pick up in like six months because this kid is at another phase of life and things that were not something that was causing difficulty six months ago are now a huge giant glaring problem. And if that discharge note is written, like they're done, they don't have a language disorder anymore. They're not necessarily going to be able to reaccess therapy intervention. And I think that's something, you know, in, in my field or in my zone or my lane of speech language pathology with thinking about dyslexia, I think there's a lot of start and stops that happen within that intervention program and really wanting to give students tools that they can use and then giving them independence to practice those with, with dyslexia therapy, especially as we get into the older ages, a lot of it 
is about compensatory strategies and accommodations. We can, we can do orthographic processing. We can sit there and learn letter sounds, but, you know, in terms of use of time and having that client buy-in, like a 16 year old sitting there doing letter cards, well, a nine-year-old sitting there, anyone doing letter cards, (laughs) they're not very much fun. So we talk a lot about how they're not fun. You know, I, I think it is, you do sometimes reach those, those roadblocks or impassable points where exactly like Camille was saying, your scope of practice has now been surpassed and having that honest conversation and being honest with yourself. Like we can't save everyone. We're not going to be the right fit for everyone. And knowing that, and, and I think even as a parent coming in and being like, I don't know if you're the right fit for my child or you were, and now it seems like we've gone into another place. And, you know, as a parent being able to see and recognize that too, you know, and it might just be that, that your SLP or your provider needs to learn that they, you know, they need to get to a point where they're, they're saying like, we've surpassed my ability. I'm going to write you a discharge note that is open for additional services. And I'm going to push you in the direction of those services, or I'm going to say, let's take a break. And, you know, when you're ready to engage again, I'm here. Or like Camille said, here's my phone number, text me, email me, you have contact to me. And that's a hard, hard balance to have. But I oh, think- it is. And I'm actually glad that you talked about, you brought up the insurance because I was going to touch on this, but I know we're running short on time here and I'm trying to respect your guys's um, schedules, but I do, since you did bring it up, I wanted to talk about the fact that yes, insurance can be difficult for some of the older kids because, and, and Alicia is smiling because we're currently dealing with a eligibility issue with Caleb because he's going to be 13 years old. And the way that some insurance companies operate is that unless it's an injury or accident that led to the communication challenge, then at a certain age, insurance companies tend to say, hey, they're seven years old. Like if we haven't learned this yet, like, you know, it's no longer, it's not, it's, you know, reasonable and necessary unless there was an injury or accident. So Caleb is older and we are currently actually filing um, and it's under review uh, at the benefits. The, um, the trustees are reviewing our request to extend Caleb's speech language pathology services because he is older. And so just talking real quick about this is that, you know, um, there are ways you can get around it. Um, we had, again, what Alicia is saying is really important, just making sure that prior speech therapists don't put in discharge papers that um, we just want to make sure that you're not basically giving the indicator that like, you're good to go. Like, you know, you're hundred percent, like there's no further communication deficit. And I really appreciated Alicia when she recently wrote the report and the appeal to the insurance company is, is that she was very clear that she felt that these were going to be services that Caleb was going to need through high school, because this isn't something that, you know, he has an autism spectrum disorder. He has an expressive receptive language processing disorder. He has dysgraphia. I mean, there's ADHD. I mean, this kid has a lot of things that are going against him. He has executive function challenges. And so you did a really nice job at kind of identifying all the different factors that are kind of comorbidly um, presenting itself in, in Caleb's case and why um, speech language um, pathology is the modality that he is going to need through high school. And here's some of the goals that we have and why we're engaging in services. And it, and so Alicia, you can, you know, it, it's not that it's a, it's a hard no, it's that you've got, you're going to have to convince us. And so there was really, um, you know, a lot of good language in there. And 
Elisa, you had some other people that were kind of coaching you on how we were going to present this for to the trustees for review. We don't have a decision yet, but I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to, was it going to be a home run? And so kind of explain, Alicia, some of the things that, you know, for families to be thinking about, like when, if you are running up into an insurance obstacle, it's what, you know, for, for speech therapy, kind of like maybe highlight, Alicia, some of those high points of kind of what was really important that they pointed out that we needed to address in this like appeal letter, if you will. So I think the biggest thing that as a provider that we have to know how to speak really eloquently about is medical necessity. So medical necessity is basically like based on these diagnosis and the way that this individual is presenting, why do you need to see a speech language pathologist? So that is, you know, a, a big part of exactly what you were just talking about, Holly, of like, you know, we talked about these are the diagnoses that we're seeing. This is what speech language pathology does to support those diagnoses. And this is why it's important. So we're talking about independence and functionality with a, not all of the individuals that we'll see for speech language pathology. But in, in my world, I have to make a lot of arguments that there is a difference between general language ability and these specific learning disorders or between, you know, potential intellectual ability or intelligence and where they're performing in these different areas. So highlighting those discrepancies that we're seeing. One of the things with niche therapy that I am doing that's different, I don't know if this is common practice, but I'm providing parents with the exact same documentation that I'm sending to insurance companies. So you guys are in the loop in what I am trying to convince your insurance company to do. And that way we can kind of dual advocate if needed. And we're all, all working on the same team. So with the insurance coverage, there's, there's so many pieces and I am on, I feel like a learning cliff. It's not like a steep learning curve. It's just a, a learning cliff on how insurance works. So there are visit limitations. Most plans will have visit limitations of some kind, but there are hard visit limitations and soft visit limitations. So that is something that is interesting. So some plans will say we have a 50 visit limit for the year and that is a hard limit. That means we're going to go through those 50 visits a year and we're done. There's nothing we're going to be able to do. We will not be able to convince the insurance company otherwise. And then there's also some companies that have soft limits. Like they might say, well, you can have 15 visits and then you need to reappeal. And then maybe we'll give you 15 more and then you need to reappeal. And I think just being really, you know, if, if you as a parent know anything about your insurance, um, sharing that information with your provider and then from a provider standpoint, when we make that, well, it's either provider or if you work for, you know, a company that has like a credentialing person or an insurance coordinator or something like that, you'll have them do all of this work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's calling the insurance companies and telling them, you know, this is the client that I'm seeing. This is the, so there's a couple different codes that we look at. There's the ICD-10 code, which is the international classification of, I think disability is what the D stands for, but I'm not, oh, diagnosis, maybe international classification of diagnosis. I don't remember what the D is, but, um, and that is our diagnostic codes. So they're like F codes, like F 81.81 is the code for dysgraphia. And so, you know, that code might not be covered by certain insurance companies. I actually know that that code is mostly not covered by insurance companies where other codes, diagnostic codes will be covered. And then you also have your CPT codes, which are your treatment codes. And that says, this is what I am doing in therapy for speech therapy. 
Well, feeding therapy will have a different treatment code than speech and language therapy. And, but it's kind of my general, this is what I did. So those are important to know. So if you're a parent and you're calling your insurance company because you want to know, Hey, is, is speech language pathology something I should even consider pursuing? What are, what does my insurance company look like? Or if you're shopping for new insurance, asking your insurance company, what is your visit limitation for speech language pathology? Is that a heart or whatever services you need? Is that a hard visit or a soft visit? Oftentimes with SLPs, we're, our visit limits are combined with physical therapists and occupational therapists. So if you have a child that's in all three of those services, you know, and you have 75 visits, your speech language pathologist might only get a third of those visits mm-hmm. or you're burning through those visits. Um, you're not going to have a full year of coverage. So that's definitely something to ask about as well. And then asking, are there certain ICD-10 codes that are either covered or not covered in terms of language disorders? And then are there CPT codes that are either covered or not covered? And again, if you're going to a clinic or you're going to a speech language pathologist, your provider or the provider's facility will also ask all of these questions for you. Yeah, but it's also part being an informed consumer. You know, again... Also too, like this is open enrollment period of time in case you didn't know, um, it's open enrollment. And so a lot of times the employees have like a couple different insurance options to choose from. And I know in our, you know, we're a blended family. So my ex-husband would have me get on the phone with his benefits department and then give me all the paperwork of the different plans that they were being offered. And then I spent the month of October and November, reaching out and understanding which each of those options were and the soft limit, hard limit rules, um, how many combined visits, was there age limitations on things like SLP? It's interesting that I feel like SLP is one of those ones where they tend to want to limit it based on age versus the the issue that what you're working on, which has just always trapped my hide a little bit. And so that's where too, some families, you know, knowing that it's like, oh, well, my kid's older than seven. So what's the point? It's It's changing. Because one of the things I loved with Alicia's letter, because she gave me the copy uh, that she sent to the insurance company, she was actually educating them on what SLP is and what they treat. And that this is, you know, the modality that we use to treat, you know, this piece and this piece and even executive function because it affects, you know, you know, communication, being organized with his communication. And, and I thought, well, how basic is that to just inform and educate an insurance company about how this modality will treat this particular treatment diagnosis disorder and how these codes play into that. So I was actually, it was well done, but all those things to keep in mind. So for open enrollment, just understand that you can be doing your homework as a parent in terms of deciding what some of these plans, which plan you choose to go to. And there are many years where I've actually elected to, um, you know, choose the plan that has the higher, it costs more per month because you get past some of those hard limits. Um, and, and so you kind of have to weigh some of those, you have to weigh some of those choices. The other thing too is, is that when we talked about, we've been talking a lot about seasons. And so this is, it is perfectly reasonable to decide, hey, our communication challenges right now are our biggest obstacle because it's causing low academics and it's causing self-esteem issues, blah, blah, blah. And so some families have, And it's perfectly fine to decide maybe you want to take a break on the PT part because you want more of those visits to go for um, working on some of those communication challenges or even vice versa that 
some of the sensory stuff is really, you know, like causing a bigger obstacle for school or home. And so we're going to have to put speech on hold because we need more visits allocated for occupational therapy. Um, those are all very reasonable and valid decisions. And um, again, I know you guys are kind of nodding there. It, those are all things that as providers, you guys understand and you can be supportive of that because again, we're talking about seasons and what's your biggest challenge right now. And we recognize that we have to make sometimes hard decisions, even based on insurance about what therapies we're going to be pursuing at any given time. Yeah, definitely. I think there is a lot of merit in that deciding where your preferences lie, um, you know, but as a family and thinking about how can we best utilize these resources to take care of, you know, moving to that next step or, or getting to the next step, you know, what, what is it that we need to prioritize? I think another thing too, that's worth talking about is, you know, having that relationship again with your provider where you feel comfortable saying something like, you know, I, I want to see you every day. I want to see you every day for the next six weeks. And then I want to be, you know, done with speech therapy for right now or whatever it is. And I know when we're working within the confines of a clinic, that sometimes is an impossible thing to do. Um, that was just to give myself another pat on the back. Yes, uh, you therapy, um, you know, that is something that I really want to think about is customizing our treatment plans and care plans to really suit the needs of each individual client because someone, you know, some an older kid that is in high school and we're just working with accommodations, I could see them once a month. You know, they don't need the same intensity of as if I'm working with a preschool student that has, you know, really severe articulation disorders or you know, a, a third grader who's just crashing and burning at school and needs a lot more support. So having that flexibility and feeling comfortable asking and advocating for what you want. I think too, with those age limits, at least from what I'm learning from talking to different billers and different insurance companies is that there is some space for wiggle room. There is room for appeal. And that's something to obviously proceed with a lot of caution because you as a family, if you're like, okay, well, we're going to move forward with it. We're going to pay for our services in full, but we're you know, hopefully we can appeal and get reimbursed. You might not be able to get reimbursed. So that's something to think about as, you know, what is your financial commitment and ability to utilize services? And that's just kind of a general concept too. So talking about like prioritizing services and prioritizing needs, but also prioritizing finances and time and seeing, you know, where do you have the space within your budget to, to participate in therapy? What does it look like based on your insurance? And then also what is your time budget to participate in therapy? This isn't, well, I don't think it's as common practice in the SLP world as it is in mental health therapy or physical therapy or just other types of medical settings. There are potentially cash pay rates. So if you do an insurance waiver, you can potentially have a rate that is at a more affordable level. Um, so that's something to think about too. If you either run into having a plan that's not going to cover your child's services with an SLP, or you run into a visit limit, talking to your provider or to your clinic about cash pay rates. And if they have something that, you know, maybe a financial uh, difficulty form or something like that, that you can appeal for, for a rate that is affordable for you and your family. Well, and I want to give one other shout out to Alicia because we have now been engaged in your new private practice that you created, Niche Therapy. 
And one of the things that because we're appealing the insurance, we're currently only just having you see Caleb one day a week, but you're doing 50 minute sessions. And I'm telling you right here, right now, I love the 50 minute session. I love it too. I love it so much. I love, love, love it so much. And when Isaac was little, speech therapy sessions were 50 minutes. And then when we engaged with Caleb to start with, I was then told it's like, oh, no, 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 now they're 30 minutes. And I was like, what? what the, or 20 minutes. I think they're like 20, yeah, 22 minutes or something. And I'm like, what in the world can we get accomplished in 22 minutes? I love, love, love the 50 minute sessions. I am actually, you know, sad because we had to drop down to one session a week because right now we're still going through some appealing processes and hoping that we can get insurance extended. But I'm telling you right here, right now, that 50 minute session and what you're able to get done with him is more than what I feel like we were really benefiting from those two, like 30 minute sessions that we were getting because it's just not that much time. And so I am telling you right here, right now, I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. So there is research, you know, if you look at, you can get research to say whatever you want, right? Like we found research to justify a higher frequency, shorter session. I know I'm so glad that you like it. I have been like talking to my husband, like on a nightly basis where I'm like, I love the first few minute sessions. Like, well, do the kids like them? Cause you know, in addition to, like I said, 80% of my current caseload having dyslexia, a large portion of them also have an ADHD diagnosis or some attentional challenges. So, you know, when I started out, I'm thinking, okay, these are the kids that I'm seeing. Oh boy, can we make it to 50 minutes? But the thing that I think I really like about that is it gives a lot more space to one, put that emphasis and value on our relationship. Because again, the more that my clients know themselves as individuals and their parents, you know, have faith and trust in me, the more relaxed everyone's going to feel. Um, and then I think the other thing that I have just really come to think is just such a great benefit of the longer sessions is we have time to see progress within the session. That is something that with shorter sessions, it feels like you're just burning through stuff and you're doing a ton of repetition. And you know, with obviously from week to week to week, you're seeing that progression. But I think being able to sit with your clients in a space of discomfort and pushing them through and watching them move to a space where they're like feeling that confidence, feeling like they have actually achieved something within that period of time is fantastic. And again, it's based on age. I'm seeing kids that are third grade through seventh grade right now. If I were working with younger clients or if I had a family with, you know, a pre-K or kindergartner coming to me, I don't I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to do a 50 minute session with a kid that young or not. Just because I feel cringy just thinking about it because I'm with you because, you know, with, uh, you know, the younger kids, 30 minutes is a stretch. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but Camille, how, how long are your sessions? Are they 30 or 50 with the feeding therapy? It depends. So I, I talk with families about that when we're scheduling and making recommendations. Sometimes I increase our frequency depending on like, if we start off with one time a week at 50 minutes and it's not, that's not enough or or 45, it's not enough. I'll increase the frequency to two times a week with what family is comfortable with. But my, my shortest visits uh, are 30 minutes. And then um, my longest are 50 depends on the kid With, with my younger kiddos. I tell families, I'm like, be expecting them to like 
exit at 30 minutes, if not sooner. And then the rest of the time is parent coaching, parent education, especially with those little guys. Because... Oh, for sure. Well, and then you also talked early on about just the fatigue. Is this an issue of stamina? Well, for those yeah. little guys, you know, when you're talking about feeding is like a chore for them. I can absolutely see how 50 minutes where you're working on something is just not going to work. So yeah. And sometimes, you know, I show up for a feeding therapy with, with baby and baby is not hungry because baby was crying their head off, you know, 45 minutes before I got there and mom had to feed her. And I was like, great, do that. Like if, if, (laughs) if they want to eat feed and, and I will see them eating next time we can parent coach at that point and, and talk about what they were struggling 45 minutes ago when I wasn't there. But yeah, sometimes the timing is off too. And we just have to redo. I had a kid throw a tantrum for 30 minutes this week. And I told mom, I said, we're learning. Even when we're crying, we're learning. So, you know, that was probably really comforting to hear because sometimes I have to be honest, you're as a parent, you're so stressed out. It's like, oh my gosh, they're here. And they're probably super annoyed because we can't get through anything. So I'm sure you're a real comfort to them. Just hearing that, oh, even in a tantrum, we're learning. So, yeah. That's what I tell families when they're practicing at stores. I'm like, I know that you don't like going to the store because we cry at the store, but maybe plan on going when you don't have something urgent to get. So you guys can practice with each other, you know, learn your limits because people are going to look at you and you're not going to be able to tell everyone like, Hey, my kid is, you know, delayed. We're working on it. Like you were doing the best you can. You know that I know that that's what's important. So Well, you guys are amazing. I just want you to know that I value the work that you do. Thank you for spending a couple hours with me just prepping for this and then giving some really good information. I still have more topics specific to SLPs that I want to get to at a, at a different time, but I know that we're running out of time and you guys have other commitments. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this podcast of Isaac's Autism Mile. And I hope I can get you guys back for um, another podcast on some other topics that I know families that have special needs kids would love to hear more information about. So thanks for joining us. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.